Welcome everybody. This is Simon Russell from Behavioural Finance Australia. Now today we're going to be talking a little bit about ESG. Now a lot have been has already been written and said about ESG, so we're going to be focusing on a couple of specific issues. Why, for example, have some ESG offers uh, been unsuccessful despite some sort of broad take-up of ESG investing um, generally? Uh, do ESG offers align with the underlying needs and preferences of uh, super funds member member base or, or an, uh, an asset manager's investors clients, for example? And what are some of the specific decision making issues that um, can beset uh, an ESG investment policy or investment process? So joining me today to discuss some of these issues is Jared Norris. Now Jared has his fingers in many pies, so rather than me butchering his introduction. Maybe, Jared, do you mind giving us a quick introduction as to what you do? Hey, good afternoon. Thank you, Simon. Uh, my primary role is uh, working with a consulting company called Nouse Group, where I'm a director in the business and digital strategy practice. Uh, I help uh, customers across a range of sectors, uh, government, corporates, not-for-profits, the works, uh, and primarily focus on, as it says in the title, business and digital strategy. Um, that's everything from customer engagement through to technology through to out and out strategy. Uh, on top of this, I also uh, am a sessional academic up at uh, QUT in the MBA program, where I contribute to the finance strategy and leadership courses in the MBA uh, and uh, spend my evenings uh, helping students there. Um, just as a little disclaimer, my views here today are my own, uh, based on the range of experiences I've had past and present. Um, and yeah, very happy to, to talk to you today. I should add just by way of background here that um, Jared and I have connected because we share an interest in a number of sort of behavioral decision-making issues. We've both been working across aspects of the financial services industry, super funds, investment managers, and in conversation um, a week or two back, we were saying, well, actually some of the sort of um, decision-making issues apply across ESG, and we thought, well, maybe ESG is a topic that maybe might be worth exploring in one of these sort of podcast conversations, whilst uh, recognising that neither of us is an expert on ESG specifically. So maybe we can kick it off then um, by exploring one of the issues that I introduced into the introduction, which is that some ESG offers have been unsuccessful. Is that consistent with uh, your experience, Jared? I said a really mixed experience. Um, A couple of years ago, I was actually talking with a fund manager. Um, they had a sustainable option that they were even considering of closing down because of how little people were using it. So what they did was they actually sent out a survey to all the members that were in that fund. Uh, actually, half of them came back and thought sustainable just meant financially sustainable and didn't realise it was even related to ESG aspects. Uh, and the other half uh, were, were in there for what they thought it was. Yeah, and I have a similar example. I remember being at a conference uh, probably two or three years back now, certainly pre-pandemic, uh, and sitting next next to a gentleman from one of the major funds, and he kept telling me you know, and, and actually emphasising over and over again, actually, that we have uh, an ESG offer, a specialist ESG offer, and we have, whatever the number was, $10 million invested in it. And he kept emphasising, that's million with an M, not billion with a B, uh, which they were most disappointed about, given how much time and energy they'd invested into creating this ESG offer. Um, but obviously, overall, ESG has been very successful. The number of dollars now being managed under ESG uh, investment arrangements, both in Australia uh, and internationally, e- ETFs, uh, super funds, uh, etc., 
is now um, quite a, a, well, a large dollar amount and large proportion as well. But if what we're seeing now is that a lot of this money is now, say, for example, being invested on the behalf of, uh, say, a super fund member base on, a, on the basis of ESG principles, and it's being done without them making an active choice in that or potentially being involved in that decision-making process really at all. Uh, do we therefore have a problem of a disconnect between those member views and what the fund or the investment manager is doing? Is that your view? Yeah, it's, it's all well-intentioned. Well I think there's um, the problem with, with ESG um, is that uh, it's more about my difference, my, what, what's important to me as an ESG investment is going to be different to what's important to you as an ESG investment. There's no easy to define box of things that make up ESG. So it's, it's really sort of important to make sure that when people talk about ESG and sustainability and all of those sorts of things that they're actually sort of understanding what they're signing up for and not just looking at the headline. So I think members are expecting um, some sort of ESG, but I'm just not... That, it's, it's sort of hard to tell whether or not that that's actually being met by the market at this point. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier the example of the sustainable investment option. Uh, are there any other examples that spring to mind where you've seen this disconnect between what an ESG offer is perhaps and what members or investor expectations might be? Yeah, it's, it's really, um, so when you're holding up a basket of, of investments for ESG, there's a general understanding that it's going to be for environmental and social good and there'll be governance um, stuff around that as well. But um, what that is, is different for all of us. So um, some, sometimes I've been talking to people and they'll expect their views to be represented. So to find out that their funds are invested in uh, firearms organisations or tobacco may be just distressing for some, but okay for others. And so it's really about uh, what's sitting in those buckets and how well it's explained to the people uh, that are investing in them to make sure that it actually aligns to their values. Uh, because at the end of the day, they are financial investments with the new, your future, your super and the protections coming in and those sorts of things. Uh, it is about the financial outcomes, but you've got to also make sure that um, your values are aligned, especially when it comes to the ESG. Yeah, and I, I really quite like your um, firearms example there, because if, if I think of what are the sorts of things that I would expect would be excluded from an investment portfolio if it had a ESG flavor, a filter or policy approach that are determining what's included in that, in that investment portfolio, I reckon firearms, uh, tobacco and coal would be high up on my list. Uh, and yet, I, I'm certainly aware that there's some research that groups like, I think, British American Tobacco, or at least some of the tobacco companies, uh, worldwide have actually rated pretty well on ESG measures because they tick a lot of boxes on some of the uh, on some of the sort of social governance uh, environmental aspects uh, outside of the the health impact of their product. And similarly, I did see the other day that Woodside uh, announced that they were going to be net zero, net carbon uh, carbon dioxide emissions zero by I forget when, but. Anyway, I was struck by the idea that uh, someone who's pumping sort of fossil fuels out of the ground uh, could get to net zero, given that as soon as you, uh, as soon as you use the product, uh, it's going to create a whole lot of uh, extra emissions, and you'd have to, I mean, you'd have to plant a, a giant forest, I guess, to offset all that. But my suspicion, I guess, is that some of those ratings are not looking through uh, to the end outcome. They're not looking through the business model to see what those uh, those business outcomes are from the use of the products, and and maybe that's what consumers are actually expecting. 
and it doesn't have to be that overt. Um, I was looking into some data centers in a past life uh, around the finances and that behind it. And what it came to bear was they were all committing to net zeros as well, but that was all around their operation. It didn't include the servers and the, and the power and all sorts of stuff that they'd sold on to clients because that was the client's responsibility. So it, having a look at the targets and seeing what sort of the things are behind them is, is sort of really important if, if, if these things are really important to you. Yeah, so those those examples are potential disconnects, I guess, between what a, an ultimate investor or investor or client or member might think versus, uh, say, what a product actually is providing or investment process is doing. Um, but of course, there can still also be issues that happen within a professional investment decision making process as well. Uh, disconnect between different investors and what the, what the process delivers versus what the expectations are actually within the fund itself. And I might just share with you a piece of research that you may have come across previously um, titled Aggregate Confusion. Uh, the authors are Berg et al. from a couple of years back. And what they did is they looked at some specialist uh, ESG uh, ratings providers. Um, and the broad conclusion they came from their examination across, I think, about six or so different, um, different rating groups uh, was that there was a fair amount of inconsistency in the ratings that were provided. So overall, there was a correlation of uh, 0.61, I think it was, uh, between the ratings provided by each of them. Now, I mean, from a social psychological perspective, that's a pretty good correlation. You'd be pretty happy if you can get um, some measures of sort of uh, psychology-based uh, metrics to correlate it uh, at a level of 0.61. But um, that compares pretty poorly with other sort of ratings uh, in the financial investment sort of space where, for example, the Moody's and S&P financial ratings, credit ratings, you, you'd expect a correlation or you'd find correlations uh, around 0.99, a high level of consistency there. And, and digging a little bit deeper, what the, the I guess the researchers found when they looked through these ratings was, I mean, there were a, a number of different reasons why there were inconsistencies. Uh, in some cases, the ratings uh, providers were uh, examining different things or different categories that they were using. Um, uh, in some cases, they might be using the same category category of item, looking at the same thing, but measuring it differently, coming to different conclusions. Um, and in other cases, they might use the same category. They might possibly come to the same uh, decision about the item and measure it the same way. But then what weight do you apply to it uh, in the overall ESG rating? And I think like uh, a lot of other industries, it's still in the sort of forming and storming and norming phase of the industry. I think uh, as we progress, there will likely to be a couple of standards that become sort of the benchmark that might make it easier over time. Um, but I, it, it's a lot less tangible than financial outcomes. So when you're talking about ESG um, sort of values and, and priorities, it's not as simple as, well, is this giving me the best beta or alpha or... Uh, what's the what's the number that it's going to deliver for me this year? Or it's it's not that uh, tangible, so it, it's going to be a lot more difficult to sort of put a number beside and say that that's the right thing to do. But I do think um, it will slowly over time sort of come down to a couple of pretty well accepted ones. Hopefully, that will make it a bit easier to compare across agencies. Yeah, one of the other potential disconnects, I guess, is the potential disconnect between what people say, what, what they say is important to them say, and what they then go and do. 
Uh, so, I mean, a super fund, for example, might very well go and survey its members, say ESG, is, is that important to you? Maybe not using that terminology. Are environmental issues important to you? Are social issues important to you? Are governance-related issues important to you? Maybe using some, some specific examples. But then do people then, after saying those things are important, do they actually do something about it? Do they take an active choice in the investments that they uh, in choosing an ESG investment option, for example. And I mean, I guess I see this all over the place. So even going to the supermarket and when I go to the supermarket, I, I take these reusable bags and I shouldn't um, claim for a second that this is because of my sort of environmental, environmentally virtuous sort of behaviours. It's largely a product of the fact that my uh, my partner has those sort of virtuous behaviours and she's got that organised and just gives them to me as I head out the door to the supermarket. Um, but as I'm standing there putting the fruit and vegetable into these sort of reusable mesh bag things, I do notice that many of the people I'm sort of standing along the, the, the lines with put, uh, placing their vegetables into their bags are often using plastic bags. And I do wonder if we did ask those people, uh, do they are they concerned about the use of plastic and the plastic going into the ocean, that sort of thing? My suspicion is that many of them would say yes. Uh, and yet here they are still using those plastic bags uh, in their weekly grocery shopping. So is this um, is this disconnect between um, what people say versus what their sort of actions, what they actually do? Is that something that you've witnessed? Yeah, I feel like there's a, a bunch of things that people uh, collectively can agree to. Um, but uh, but then when they start going out and doing things like there's a number of business models, uh, we're, we're so focused on convenience um, as a group of people these days with our third world problems that uh, convenience will often trump values when it comes to really sort of unpacking business models and sustainable practices and those sorts of things. And so until people are made aware of them and are forced to make a decision or uh, actively making decisions, it's quite easy to, to, to let it slip to the back of your mind. Um, so it just comes back to everyone's really positive, really happy and do these things, but are they activated enough to the point where they're willing to make an investment switch or look into it further to understand it more? I think that's where the sort of, the behaviors are probably not as well aligned to, to, to the words because it takes a lot to activate a person to actually go out and proactively make, make choice, especially when it comes to things like superannuation. Uh, we've all seen how hard it is to get members to get engaged in that. So getting them engaged, then also getting them to make those proactive decisions around which uh, what they should be investing in based upon their values is is sometimes very difficult to do. Yeah, yeah, I'd, uh, I'd tend to agree. Um, all right, so we've spent a bit of time sort of articulating, I guess, some of the uh, issues. So maybe we can turn now to some of the solutions. Um, one possibility is education. Um, what is the role of education? If I'm a financial advisor or a super fund or perhaps an investment manager, do you think I should be using education as a tool for, for overcoming some of these issues? Um, it needs to be part of that wider discussion with your customers around what are you trying to achieve from this, doing all your sort of fact-finding and, and risk analysis. This is one component of that. The, the second group of things that I, I think we probably need to think about is the investment. Like, this is what everyone sees ESG is about. It's that investment angle. Uh, it's a but it's just more, it's gotta be more than the asset mix. Um, how does it affect what you manage internally or externally? Uh, do you need to think about how you're selecting your, your managers uh, to, to align better to your values and what it is you're trying to achieve? Uh, how do you manage ESG across different asset classes? Um, so how far down the rabbit hole do you go? 
um, they're all sort of different questions rather than just what am I investing in? Yeah, and, and given there's a lot of complexity, there's a lot, and there's a lot of stuff in what you've just described, then it obviously creates the challenge of well, how do you communicate all that detail, all that complexity, all those issues in an engaging way to a financial advisor's clients or to super funds fund members in a way that they're going to then read, understand, and maybe do something about. I mean, particularly given um, it's very hard just to get them to maybe click twice to even consolidate their super. So given that, what do you have some suggestions about how you can perhaps communicate some of those issues in an engaging way to uh, to a client or to a member? Yeah, and so what, what it comes down to me is um, as the investment manager or the super fund or whatever it is, you're in a very privileged position because you've got all the data, um, you've got all the information, you can see the trends, you can you can see what's going on in the place. And so it's got to be about educating people about that. So um, showing how um, I got a, my own super fund statement recently and it showed how the sustainable options were going against the normal options and those sorts of things. And it actually performed better. But at that level, it didn't really tell me what sustainable meant. So um, uh, it could be just including some visuals. It could be saying our view of sustainable is this or um, click here for more information. But it's, it's got to be more than just numbers because people don't get convinced by numbers. It's, it's the story. It's the feeling. It's the emotion of it all. And so there's got to be ways of communicating that, that, that make more sense and are going to achieve someone actually going out and taking action. So there's got to be that call to action. So it's got to be, the education's got to be there, but it's got to be delivered in a way that actually resonates with the people receiving it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the challenge is that how do you how do you go about doing that? I mean, there's a um, there's a bit of research I think out of the US, which I don't have in front of me, but it, uh, from memory, it said something like ninety percent of the behavioural impact uh, of um, the statements that you send out as a major pension fund or super fund to their members, ninety percent of the impact comes from what's on page one. Um, so if you're relying on someone trying to uh, having to turn the page to to read more information, then you're probably it's, it's probably a bridge too far. Um, but I did like one of the things in particular you mentioned there, which was the idea that where you can click on a link and get more information, which I guess is effectively an example of of layering the information, isn't it? I mean, there's there's a thousand things you need to know about ESG, and if you want to go down the rabbit hole, as you say, and and explore those thousand things, well, yes, you can, and you can click here and all the details. Uh, sit on various web pages or in documents and members or clients can explore them uh, if they wish but you're not overwhelming them at the time with is all this sort of stuff information which probably they're they're not going to read at all um, so perhaps we might move on to the financial advisors though we talked about that briefly um, and I guess the broader industry context here is that there's a code of ethics uh, that's come out advisors would know well of course uh, one of the obligations there is that advisors need to uh, take into consideration the broader circumstances or words that affect uh, of their clients. Um, now, some have interpreted that to mean uh, thinking about things like ESG. Uh, I think uh, there's also been some commentary to say, well, actually, the, the broader interest you should be first thinking about as a, as a client might extend to the, say, the immediate family uh, members of the uh, of the client, particularly if you're thinking about things like insurance, for example. But uh, setting that issue aside, have you seen some examples of, of uh, financial advisors broaching the ESG issue and communicating it well with their clients? Yeah, and I, I think um, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. ESG is one topic in a bunch of things that an advisor will probably need to, to talk to their, to their clients about when they're understanding them. Uh, it, 
not everyone is at the same level of interest for ESG, obviously. And so understanding what's important to that to that client is really, really going to help you uh, maintain that relationship and, and help them figure out what's important. Some people are happy to know that it's into a sustainable thing, but that's the level of involvement they want. Other people want to go down that rabbit hole. Is it firearms? Is it tobacco? Is it coal mines? Um, is it industries that are energy intensive, whatever it might be. And so you need to, uh, as an advisor, be across this information so that you can get to the level of it, get to the level of interest of what, what the client is, because everyone's got to be different uh, across everything that you ever talk to a client about. Everyone's always different. And meeting those broader interests is, is going to be really important, um, not only just to make sure that they're getting into the right products and those sorts of things, but it's more about building that connection. If they're interested in this sort of stuff, uh, you need to you need to maintain that relationship over time. So you need to be able to help educate and help bring them along the journey. And um, like any other interest your clients might have, this is another one that you need to stay close to so that uh, just the relationship uh, can grow over time and make that uh, customer a lot stickier because they can see that you're, you're catering to their needs and what their interests are. Yeah, and I guess these things are easier, aren't they, for a financial advisor? I mean, you've got the client right in front of you. You can have a direct face-to-face conversation backwards and forwards. You understand their circumstances. Um, compared with, say, a super fund where you've got maybe a large, broad, diverse membership base, probably uh, they're fairly disengaged. You have little information on uh, on which to base a, a, um, an assessment of their needs and circumstances. Um, so in that circumstance, if I'm if I'm a super fund, um, what can we do? I mean, what about um, surveys, ESG surveys? What's your view on those? A uh, very interesting idea. Again, you run into the problem that uh, uh, sample bias. Uh, in that, uh, I'm sure if like you send out your member statements, uh, if you send out a survey, there's uh, going to be a response rate usually around five to ten percent, uh, based upon my my experience. Uh, and you're generally going to get people at one end of the spectrum or the other. Um, so it, it's about trying to temper that with, with the experience of the cohort. So yes, the survey is good, um, but the survey has got to be frame right as well. It, it's got to be more than, do you care about ESG? Um, do you care about carbon? Do you care about trees? And so this is where the behavioral economics will really come into it around framing those surveys in a way that you're asking people what their... Um, what their drivers are without necessarily leading them to a solution. Because by understanding what their, what their drivers are, that's how you can then sort of build whatever portfolios you need. And so uh, surveys are good as long as they're well-written and as long as they are designed to get you to the information you need rather than just a list of answers. And the important things about surveys is you can sort of then build products off them. And so you might say, this is our core values. Our members all agree these are the right things. And so that's the sort of stuff you can put in your my super products or your default larger moderated ones. Uh, but then you might also then say, well, actually, I've got a segment of, of clients that really care about this, this group of ESG issues. And you might be able to, rather than just having a generic ESG side product that people can select through choice, you might actually tailor that to suit that well, you should be tailoring it to suit that um, customer need more. So rather than saying, what if, what about, maybe, you can use those surveys and that information to help you build your, your, your products and that sort of stuff around what your actual members want rather than what, what's just in the media. Yeah, and one of the examples that you, you um, gave when we were talking offline was uh, an example of using 
a survey, not so much as a sort of tool to understand a member or a client, but as a sort of a triage tool where um, it would, uh, like a, a client might answer, be asked a question on the basis of that question, you, you might be presented with a, a different question that relates to the first question so that you sort of led down a path, a sort of decision-making path that then allows you to sort of follow the, uh, the skipping stones all the way through to a solution. Um, and what I, I quite liked about that was it's, well, it's action-oriented. You, you've taken the person actually to an outcome where they might then act as opposed to perhaps a survey as a standalone tool where it's a great piece of engagement to start with, but what does it lead to? Well, that might be the only time that that member actually responds to anything and you've lost the opportunity. So I quite like the action-oriented piece of that. Uh, and also the transparency that you, you get to see as the client or the member, well, what, what are my preferences and how do they therefore align to this thing that now is being suggested might actually be appropriate for me? Um, some of the really cool surveys I've seen, um, sort of, I don't know if you had the experience, but um, some surveys, if you start getting questions right, if it's like a test or something like that, the questions get harder. And if you get them wrong, they get sort of easier. So if you're looking at it from an ESG perspective, if you start showing a significant interest in a particular area, it might delve into that more deeply. And so it's got a bit of smarts about it. It's not just a, here's 300 questions, tell us what you think. It's a much shorter list of questions that it's really tailored around how you're responding and sort of um, what the information you're providing is to sort of dig into those areas of interest, but not overburden you with questions because if you give someone 300 questions chances are you're not going to get them all answered so it's sort of there's again really smart ways to do this that i think uh you can probably build into your advice platforms or build into your onboarding experiences as a super fun and those sorts of things uh, but it's got to go more than just the basic what do you think about esg uh like if you Google ESG questionnaire, you'll end up with a thousand results that have all got slightly different variations of the same six to 10 questions. So uh, if you really, if this is really a, a sort of a differentiator for you, um, there's a lot of stuff you can do in that space that makes it really interesting. You understand your customers more, they get better outcomes and you're really differentiating on, on what it is you're offering. Yeah, and that sort of nicely leads into my next question, which I know you've touched on uh, to some extent already. But the question is, I guess, well, what's the best way to structure an ESG offer? Is it to have a, uh, a broad ESG offer, which is going to satisfy most members of a cohort? Or is it to have sort of specific ones that are more tailored to individual sort of needs and preferences? Or, or maybe just have ESG principles integrated into sort of standard systems and processes that apply um, to investing portfolios generally. What, what do you think there? So again, it comes back to what is ESG, um, because ESG at its core um, could be seen as realistically just a big risk management tool, right? So ESG is all about the long-term risks to your funds. It's, it's not about what's going to happen in, in three months' time, but it's what's happening in five, 10 years' time. And so if you're using ESG in that space uh, as a risk management tool, that should be across the board. Um, it's when you start getting into how deep do I go on particular issues and how much is that going to impact the financial outcomes of the people I'm investing on, it then gets sort of a little bit harder. So if you know your members well enough, you should be able to identify a core group of values um, that they have and are represented in the way you position yourself in the market. And that level of ESG should be quite pervasive, I'd imagine, across all of your products. 
but like all things, it depends on uh, where if so if you're a broad, huge fund looking for a mass audience, you're not going to want to tailor every product to um, the sort of very specific things that um, small number of people care about. So uh, it's the ESG at its highest level will probably apply against everything. And then it just comes down to your, your scale as to how many other products you have in general anyway, and how specific you can make them. Um, thinking at a general sense from a super fund or investment management fund, there's the usual, here's a big pool of options. You've got your super, uh, my super options or your choice options that are generally predetermined buckets that fit certain requirements. So ESG at the highest level would apply to your my super stuff. You might have an ESG or sustainable option that's a choice product, which would then cover a, a broader range of, of issues that are not shared perfectly across, but are well represented enough for your, your, your group that, that it's going to meet their needs. But then you might end up with sort of the, the self-investment or the, the really fine ability to people to pick and choose what it is in their basket of investments. For those people that have a really strong sort of values and, and purpose driven to their investments, and that will give them the freedom then. So if you start you stratify your options according to A, your own organizational values and principles, but B, your customers' needs, um, you can then have that sort of holistic view of how it is you're delivering and how it is you're having that positive influence. Uh, and you're sort of meeting the needs of, of, of everyone that you're looking at. Yeah, and I guess um, I guess the technology makes a difference here as well, doesn't it? So, I mean, if I'm an advisor and I've got a, I don't know, a managed accounts uh, technology platform that allows me to have a model portfolio, a sort of standard set of investments that applies across investors generally, uh, across my clients generally, but it also allows me some flexibility that on an individual client-by-client -client basis, I can apply a specific rule um, uh, the non-tobacco rule for Mary, who has that as a particular issue she's concerned about, and the no-coal rule for John, who who's particularly concerned about uh, uh, carbon dioxide pollution or, or whatever it is. The important thing is as long as the people are aware of the impact it is on their outcomes, because at the end of the day, investment is about making money. Um, and if you're excluding yourself from certain options by default, if that's going to negatively impact the outcomes, people need to be aware of it. Fortunately, companies that do well ESG-wise are generally high performers, so you don't necessarily have that problem. But if you start getting down to some more niche areas, there is a potential for uh, not getting the same outcomes uh, as if you were investing in a much more broader pool of options. Yeah, and um, perhaps we can just go back for a second now um, and revisit one of the issues we talked about just a moment ago, which was the uh, disparities between some of the assessments made by these uh, specialist ESG rating houses. Um, do you have some thoughts about how we can improve the rigor around each of the E, the S and the G components when making some of these sorts of assessments? So I think uh, E and S are pretty well defined. Um, environmental is all about sustainable, carbon neutral, um, the right sort of investments in that space. And there's a plethora of options around that. Sustainable is a little bit murkier, but still getting better and better over time. For mine, the one that people sort of don't bring to the spotlight as much is the G around governance. I feel like it, that's more of an introspective thing at times and people feel more accountable for that. So don't necessarily want to highlight that as much. It's, it's definitely something that's really interesting. And it, it sort of does go into that how far down, down the, the line do you go with the governance? Um, because it's all about how you govern the fund, but also how the organizations you're investing are governing themselves. Do they have the right number of women on boards? And do they have um, 
uh, are they provided have they got supply chains that are, that are effective and uh, obviously the modern slavery um, stuff feeds into that as well but how far down do you go that there's a whole plethora of things that uh, people don't necessarily think about because um, they aren't sort of in the news as much but can have the same sort of impacts on what it is your purpose and vision is so I feel like the governance aspect is really where the opportunity is um, when you're talking about ESG as a whole, because I feel like there are so many options out there for environment. There's so many options out there for sustainable. I feel like governance is, is the least sexy word that you can ever put in front of people, but I think it's the one with the biggest opportunity in the near term. Yeah, and if we go back to that research that I mentioned earlier, I mean, look at the specifics around the G um, there and, and the, what the researchers were showing was that, well, the, the correlation generally um, on some of those governance measures between different, uh, the, the assessments made by different rating groups uh, was quite low, but sometimes it was negative. So not just coming to a, a different conclusion, but actually a, a, an opposite one. And sometimes there were quite um, uh, wild discrepancies between things that the researchers argued were actually fairly readily or should have been readily quantifiable, like, for example, whether the whether there was separation between a, a CEO uh, and a chair. So on the one hand, I have some sympathies, I guess, some of those, there's, some, there's some real issues around the, the governance specifically. But on, on the other hand, I guess I'm reflecting that some of what the researchers were finding there was, was when you drilled into the, the reasons for some of the discrepancies generally, well, it's a, a function of things like the, the categories that you use, the measures that you apply, the weights that you use uh, to, to then assess them and combine those things into a into a decision which frankly on reflection i mean that to me sounds like good investment decision making generally they're, they're the sorts of things that i would be talking to to investment managers about and employing those sorts of rigors across an investment process regardless of, of es of esg would you agree with that view i think um g is a lot more contextual as well because it's very different in an american environment to an australian environment to an asian environment um you, your, your comment there around chair versus board uh, in an American context is different to an Australian context, um, chair versus CEO, sorry. Um, and so it's different in the context. So it's a lot harder to be that clear cut. Um, whereas I think in the, the E and the S are, are so much, have had airtime to the point where they're a lot more sort of um, crystallized. I think the G still got a long way to come in actually getting some conclusions around what are the important aspects to look at and, and how do they measure them. It's all based around the society in which you live as well. So um, I guess we're getting to the end, uh, about to wrap this up. So just before we do, I mean, you've obviously got a lot of insights in relation to some of these issues, but um, can you give us a bit of a sense of what some of the work is that you're currently doing? Are you working with clients around some of these sorts of ESG issues? The, the work we're looking at is generally helping people understand what their members want, what they're looking for. Uh, and so it comes back to that, uh, making sure you understand what, what, their, what their values and purpose are and making sure that you then translate that into how your organization is set up. So it's understanding who your clients are, making sure that you're, you're not just doing that sort of skim over the top of the ESG and sort of really thinking about how it is your investment structures are set up, how does your organization corporate set up around um, sort of meeting and delivering on those values and uh, ideals for people. And it really helps you differentiate your offer. Things like, yes, it's great to have a net zero target, but without any sort of strategy to get there, it's nothing more than just a target and people get caught up in deliverables and announceables and all those sorts of things. 
But what we can do is we've come in and we've helped people work through, well, what does it actually mean for me? What does that mean for my organisation? What does it mean for my investments? What does it mean for uh, what it is we need to do in our supply chain and all those sorts of things to make sure that we're actually having the real impact on, on society that we're expecting to have. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you to discuss some of these sorts of issues, what's the best way? Um, I'm on LinkedIn and I also have a page on our website. Um, so easily available and findable on LinkedIn. I'm sure there'll be a link that goes out with this, um, but also some examples of some recent work and um, where I fit into the organisation on, on the NAS Group website available if people want to see that. Great. Um, and on that note, I think we'll wrap it up there. So, um, Jared, thank you very much for your time and we'll look forward to speaking again soon. Good to talk to you.